Welcome to The Great Exchange, a podcast about examining the lies that we believe and exchange them for God's truth. I'm your host, Brady Cohn. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, I'm going to talk about one of the lies our culture believes about sexuality, and that lie is that the Bible isn't actually clear about homosexuality. And many of us who come from a biblical background and we were in Bible-believing churches, we think it's really, really cut and dry and we have a solid understanding on what God says. But we have a segment of society that is trying to twist Scripture. And they, they say they believe in the Bible. They say they believe in God's Word. But they say that the Bible doesn't actually clearly address homosexuality. And the passages in which it talks about homosexuality is talking about something different than what our culture practices today when it comes to homosexuality. And so I found that if we're going to engage in culture and if we're going to make a difference in people's lives, if we're going to address the lies that we are believing, we have to understand those lies. And we have to be able to give a biblical defense. And we have to understand what do they believe so that we can uh, engage with that and exchange it for God's truth. Today we're addressing this topic of revisionist theology. It's this concept of people who believe in God's word, but don't believe that God's word addresses homosexuality as we practice it today. One of the authors who really got this movement started about 10 years ago is Matthew Vines, and I've seen his book referenced a lot uh, online, people really buying into that argument. And really, that argument is really easy to believe sometimes, because if you just Google it, uh, there's people everywhere, there's websites everywhere that subscribe to that belief. I'll bet that 9 out of 10 websites online, because people are desperate to believe that. And so this argument of revisionist theology claims that the Bible isn't talking about homosexuality as we practice it, but it's actually other issues like pedophilia, rape, or in a variety of other things. What they claim is that homosexuality today between two consenting adults is not what uh, was actually addressed in God's word. Before we get into the specific verses about sexuality in the Bible, I want to share a couple of observations that I, I make about people who subscribe to revisionist theology. One is that uh, they usually don't have the same understanding of God's word as we do. They don't use the same hermeneutic. They don't have the same understanding of the authority of God's word in our lives. They don't have the understanding of the inerrancy of scripture. And so many times as we're walking alongside someone who has bought into revisionist theology, uh, it's important to not just look at these handful of verses in the Bible that talk about sexuality, but instead look at the bigger picture and look at uh, how do they view scripture? What is their belief in God's word? What authority do they believe it has in our lives? And many times we need to address the bigger picture in their life before we can narrow it down to these specific passages on sexuality. My second observation is that for most of them, it's more than just an academic or theological argument. It's something that's very personal and something that's been very painful. They've had deep wrestling and many times rejection and their experiences have led to bitterness and hard heartedness. So while it's great to have this theological discussion with them, 
We also need to show compassion and minister to their hearts. We need to do much more listening than we do speaking. And with that said, let us dig into what God's Word says. We're going to start in Romans 1. And Romans 1 is really the theme of this podcast, examining the lies that we believe and exchanging them for God's truth. Because Romans 1, it was this progression where they traded the truth about God for a lie. And because of that, they worshiped creation instead of the Creator. And that gave them lust uh, for one another. And they had sexual relations amongst one another. And so that's where most sin begins, is is exchanging the truth about God for a lie. I'm going to read starting in verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are, that are contrary in nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so we see that progression in this passage. And by God's grace, uh, he can undo what our hearts have twisted. We see that in my own life where through the power of the Holy Spirit, I I got control over how, how I was living. I walked away from the homosexual life. And now through the process we know as sanctification or ongoing transformation in our life, God has continually revealed to me the lies that I had believed that led me to this place of homosexuality. And so back to this passage in Romans 1, the argument from revisionist theology is this. Their argument is that the sin here is actually acting unnaturally. And they they claim that some people have a natural heterosexual orientation and some people naturally have a homosexual orientation. And I don't believe that, but that's what they claim. Uh, What is called sin here would be a man with a heterosexual orientation having sex with another man because they say that that is uh, contrary to his nature as a heterosexual man. Or they say it would even be uh, sinful for a homosexual man uh, to have sex with a woman because that would be in contrary to what comes natural to him. And so let's examine where does this interpretation not hold up to truth? Well, first of all, it says, Likewise, men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And so men consumed with passion for one another. That, by definition, is not a heterosexual man having sex with another man. A man who burns with passion for another man is not, by definition, a man who is is heterosexual by nature. A heterosexual man does not burn with passion for another man. If he does, then he's not uh, heterosexual in his orientation. Therefore, this whole argument is just a logical fallacy that, by their very own definitions cannot be true. 
Secondly is this, I'd like to look at the Greek. Uh, the term that Paul uses for the term unnatural is the Greek phrase ten paraphusin. While this might be a new term in the Bible, it wasn't new in Greek literature. This term was commonly used in Greek literature to mean unnatural relations, which commonly meant homosexuality. It wasn't pedophilia. It wasn't rape. In those days, they had homosexuality that looked much like ours today, consenting relationships between adults. And so Greek literature, when we look at the, the scholars and the philosophers, they knew what this term meant and they used it regularly in their literature. They knew that it meant consenting homosexual relationships. So it's unlikely that Paul would uh, um, use this term in any other way when it was clear in literature what it meant. It meant contrary to nature and in context, Paul's writing and the context of how it was used, it meant uh, homosexuality per se as we practice it today. There's no reason to believe that it was anything other than homosexuality just like we practice it today. So again, there's this progression and we have to trust that uh, God is a big enough God that through his sanctifying work, through his grace, he can help people get control over how they live their life. Uh, they, he examines the, the idolatry. He, he helps people understand the lies that they have believed. And so as we're ministering these passages to people, as we walk alongside them, we have to get to the bottom. What is their uh, heart believing? What lies have they believed? And so many of the people who have bought into this form of revisionist theology, they want to believe it desperately because many times they've tried to change. They've tried to deny themselves. They've tried for, for many years to just hold it inside um, and, and not act on these desires. But this revisionist theology comes along and kind of gets them off the hook. All of a sudden they quit struggling because all, it no longer has to be a struggle because they can just embrace the homosexual feelings and desires and sometimes behavior that they're, they're living out. And so as we try to apply this to someone's life, we need to dig in deep into their heart into their life and really uh, understand what barriers do they have to believing the truth? What lies have they believed based on their experience and help them then come to a place of understanding God's truth? The next passage we're going to look at comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is really one of the go-to passages when talking about uh, homosexuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 say, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so some of the some translations uh um, might actually have two different phrases for uh, the, the phrase that's translated, nor men who practice homosexuality. And that's because in the Greek, it's it's actually two different words. I'm reading from the ESV today, you know, the, the extra spiritual version. And so I, I like the ESV and I think it does a great job. But there's actually two different words that in some translations like the NIV are actually translated into two different phrases. But revisionist theology says that this passage isn't referring to consenting adults. They claim, again, that it's going back to other issues like pedophilia and rape. But we can, uh, we can look at the Greek and understand what it means. And so there's two words here 
in the Greek that are translated to this phrase, men who practice homosexuality. The first one is this Greek word malakoi, and that refers to a little more the passive role in a same-sex relationship with two men. Uh, the, the second Greek word, word is arsnikoitai. And when we break down the root word of arsnikoitai, it literally means male in bed. So it's a man who takes another man to bed with him. It was often used to refer to more the masculine role in a same-sex relationship between two men. And it's used throughout Greek literature. So we know that it was a, a word that was understood and a word that was known. Um, and there's no indication in how it's used in Greek literature that it means anything other than two consenting male adults. Now, the next passage is 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 8, starting in verse 8, says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. So in this passage, it's really easy to break this down because it uses the same word, arsnikoitai, which was one of the one of the words used in First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6. So we see the same word that was well known, meaning two consenting adults in a homosexual relationship, use again in 1 Timothy. The next passage in the New Testament where it mentions homosexuality is the book of Jude. Jude 1.7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire. So the Greek phrase here um, is the same Greek phrase used uh, in Romans 1, uh, 10 paraphusin, to be translated to unnatural desire. So again, we see this same pattern, these same words used throughout the New Testament talking about homosexuality. And these words were very prevalent, uh, well-known words uh, in, in this time. And so there, there really shouldn't be any doubt of what they actually mean. I think that's all the times in the New Testament where homosexuality is mentioned. But I'd also like to spend some time on the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament have to say? Uh, many times people talk about Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And Leviticus 20.13 says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And so what does revisionist theology say? How does revisionist theology twist this passage of scripture? They say that all Old Testament law is void because we're under the new covenant. They compare it to Old Testament laws such as not eating shellfish and wearing fabric of mixed fibers. I see those arguments all the time over the internet. One of my favorite quotes from Abraham Lincoln, one of my favorite presidents, he said, if it's on the internet, it must be true, right? And so when I see uh, these arguments on the internet and I see all these arguments on social media, I see these posts all the time when it talks about homosexuality and the Bible and people respond, well, well, if you're trusting the Old Testament then I, and following it, then you, I hope you're not wearing a shirt that has mixed fibers because that's also against Old Testament law. 
And so these people just don't actually have a full understanding of the Old Testament and the different aspects of the Old Testament and how they apply to us today. So I'd like to explain the three different aspects of the Old Testament and how they're applied or not applied uh, while we're under the New Covenant. The first aspect of the, the Old Testament was the civil law. And so the civil law did really expire with the demise of the Jewish civil government. This was civil law like we practice today, uh, where we have we make laws that deal with uh, uh, justice issues and practices and how to deal with the poor and what to do with like commerce and business and robbery and extortion and bearing false witness and restitution. The entire criminal code, that is civil law. And the civil law for the Jews that God gave to them for the Jewish government uh, do not apply to us today. The second aspect of the, the Jewish law was the ceremonial law. And this work also expired, but it ex expired because of the priestly work of Christ. This, these were the laws on the sacrificial system. These were the laws on the, the animals that were sacrificed, the cleansing, the laws of atonement, the, the regulation for the priest, the festivals, uh, the entire ceremonial aspect of the Jewish people. Those no longer apply to us because uh, they were for that time and that place. But lastly, the third aspect of, of the law was the moral law. And this law has no expiration because it's based on God's character, which is unchanging. We see in uh, Leviticus 19.2, it says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we see that repeated in, in 1 Peter. Uh, he, he quotes that passage because these this morality does not expire. These are laws dealing with like the Ten Commandments, do not steal, and laws do not oppress your neighbor, don't commit idolatry, uh, don't sacrifice children to, to Moloch, uh, don't practice homosexuality, love your neighbor as yourself. And the morality of God is true both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we as God's people are to be living lives that express and show and reflect God's morality. That's what he, he asks of his people to uh, be changed from the inside out so we express his character. One last argument from the revisionist theologians is that Jesus never spoke of homosexuality. Uh, but I, I would have three responses um, to that argument. And I hear this all the time. It's like, well, Jesus never actually talked about homosexuality, so it must not be a big deal, right? Or uh, it must not be something that we should care about. Or it must not have been bad at all because otherwise Jesus would have addressed it. But God did affirm marriage between man and woman through Jesus in Matthew 19. Jesus, in Matthew 19, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so there we see Jesus in the New Testament did reaffirm God's design for marriage between one man and one woman. But secondly, I would also argue that Jesus didn't speak of a lot of things. 
He didn't talk about abuse of the elderly. He didn't talk about speeding, which is probably good because I've kind of done that on a regular basis recently. He didn't talk about some serious moral issues such as infanticide. But thankfully, we don't have just the words of Jesus to live by, uh, where we don't inform our biblical understanding just from uh, the words of Jesus. We have the entirety of Scripture. We have the entirety of, of the New Testament to, to see what's expected of us in this current time. We have the teachings of Paul and the rest of the New Testament. We have the entire inerrant Word of God. And lastly, I'd say this is that Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. The story of Jesus doesn't start in Matthew 1.1. It starts in Genesis 1.1. And so it started in Genesis when God created the heavens of the earth. And so we're not living under some new... Uh, just some new religion, even though we might have a different dispensation, a different time period, and some different expectations. But our our view of Scripture, our view of God, our information we have available to inform us who God is and what He expects of us uh, comes from all of Scripture, starting in Genesis 1-1. And we can go to uh, those passages and understand what was the purpose of marriage? What was the purpose of humanity? How did we fall into sin? Uh, we get inside views into the human heart and human nature, and it all helps us understand this, this concept of homosexuality and God's expectations for us in, in repentance of that. And so where do we go from here with the people in our life who maybe have bought into these false views of of homosexuality, these false views of revisionist theology that says that the Bible doesn't actually address homosexuality as, as we know it. Uh, first of all, we can do this. We get on our knees and we pray. We, we pray and we mourn the fact that people have been deceived. We, we mourn the fact that they've bought into a lie and we start praying for them. Uh, we respond with an attitude of humility, knowing that we are just in need, as in need of a Savior as they are. So our response to sinners in the world is a response of mourning and humility. So let's be on our knees praying for them. We respond by building bridges, by sharing the hope that we have, by being transformed in our own lives. Our response uh, doesn't even start with the world out there. It starts within us. It starts by us seeking the transformation in our own lives that we want to call the world to because the LGBTQ community is never going to buy the message of the gospel that we have for them unless they see us living it themselves. Because we've all twisted sexuality in some way. We've all twisted sexuality by looking to another person to find our hope, to find our value, to find our wholeness. Um, we've all twisted sexuality, even in sometimes a heterosexual marriage, by turning to a person to do something inside of us that they were never meant to do. So our response to the world out there is to be on our knees praying for them and praying that God transforms our own life and that can be a witness to the world out there. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Great Exchange. And we pray that as you go throughout your week, you can also examine the lies that you believe and exchange them for God's truth. I pray that this is a valuable resource that you can start to come alongside others and walk alongside them. Be sure to check our website, thegreatexchangepodcast.com for other videos and resources. You can go to our main website, calibrateministries.com. We appreciate uh, your support of this ministry. Uh, we appreciate 
appreciate um, you guys sharing on social media, liking our videos, sharing with your friends who might be encouraged. Um, if you feel led to support the ministry, you can do that by making a donation at calibrateministries.com. We appreciate you and, and pray that we'll see you again next week. Mm -hmm.